electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Eamon Jabbers in for Brian Sullivan tonight and right now on Last Call. First, it was the NASDAQ. Now the S&P 500 is in correction. Where should investors seek refuge? Two top experts are here with ideas. And do we have another deal? General Motors and the UAW near a landmark agreement will have the breaking developments. Fireworks in court. Sam Bankman-Fried's blockbuster testimony living up to the hype. But will it sway the jury? Speaking of crypto... Bitcoin scores one of its best weeks in a year, and the bulls may not be done. Plus, tonight, a CNBC investigation into a pandemic relief program and an industry that popped up alongside it to cash in on billions of taxpayer dollars. And losing its charge, why your iPhone battery may not be holding up like it used to, and how you can fix it. All that and much more over the next hour. Last Call is up right now. Good evening. We begin tonight with rapidly developing news out of the Middle East. Israel is expanding its ground operations in Gaza. We're getting live pictures now of the Israeli city of Ashkelon. That's right near the Gaza border. Israel's military signaling it's moving closer to an all-out invasion of the besieged territory. This comes as Israel continues to pound Gaza with a barrage of airstrikes. NBC News correspondent Hala Garani is live in Tel Aviv. Hala, what are you seeing there now? Um, right now, uh, we've uh, heard, as you mentioned, some significant developments coming to us from the Israeli military, but also uh, from people inside the Gaza Strip, those who are able very sporadically to get news out. We understand that the Israeli military has expanded its ground operations and that it is striking uh, the Gaza Strip with intensifying airstrikes, uh, tank strikes, as well as artillery. This doesn't appear to be that all-out ground offensive that was announced in the early days after the October 7th uh, attacks by the Israeli government. It appears to be a more limited incursion. It's unclear, really, what the mission is tonight. It could be to secure a little bit of territory inside the Gaza Strip or identify tunnels or identify locations of, of hostages. But right now, we can't say with any degree of confidence, this is the beginning of the large-scale offensive, even though, interestingly, some uh, diplomats across the region have announced it. For instance, the Jordanian foreign minister, Ayman Safadi, said this is the beginning. Mark Regev, one of the Israeli government spokespeople, said essentially that Hamas was going to start feeling some pain. But right now, it seems like it's limited to a pretty shallow incursion with very, very intense bombing from the air uh, and from the ground, and also a complete uh, communications blackout with Gaza. Uh, the internet, landlines, cell phone, all disrupted. 
pretty much almost impossible to get information out of Gaza right now. Hala, so much scrutiny here in the United States on whether the Israelis are going to make that big push or in the end decide to hold off. Can you just outline for our viewers tonight mm -hmm. what the calculation is on the Israeli government's part, why they might want to make that big push or what the factors are that might hold them back from doing it? So that's a good question. In the in the early days after October 7th, uh, our viewers are all aware that the Israeli leadership promised this really intense, large-scale offensive, redraw the Middle East, wipe out Hamas, its capabilities and its leadership. But we're three weeks in, and so far we've seen a few limited incursions. Why? Well, one reason could be there are hostages. There's a lot of pressure internally on the Israeli prime minister and his cabinet to rescue those hostages before mounting a ground offensive. The other reason could be that there was some calculation internally made about what the cost could be to the Israeli military to go in thousands of ground troops fighting door to door, building to building an urban warfare battle. This costs a lot. It costs a lot in 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 time and in in personnel as well. And there is also the notion that the U.S. has put some pressure and other Western leaders on the Israeli uh, government saying that uh, they maybe should pause, they should take it a little bit more easily and give time for humanitarian aid to go in to a Gaza Strip that is suffering immensely under these airstrikes and to allow for more oxygen to get the hostages out. So those could be two or three reasons here why we did not see or have not seen yet this full-scale ground invasion that we've been expecting for weeks now. Hala, thank you so much for your reporting tonight. The escalating Israel-Hamas war weighing significantly on the markets today. The S&P 500 slumping into correction territory, meaning it has now fallen more than 10 percent from the highs. The Nasdaq did so earlier this week. The Dow, well, it's not far behind. The conflict in the Middle East isn't the only thing putting investors on edge. The Fed's next decision on interest rates, that's set for Wednesday. The central bank is widely expected to hold rates steady, but you never know until you see it. And all eyes will be on Fed Chair Powell's press conference as a hawkish stance could spook investors on the day after Halloween. And that's not all. There's also a big slate of earnings next week led by Apple on Thursday. This comes as other big tech stocks have gotten absolutely crushed recently. So what should investors do? Let's, gonna, let's talk about that with our A-list panel tonight. Clio Capital Managing Director Sarah Kunst is here and Veritas Financial Managing Partner and one of the biggest bears on Wall Street, Greg Branch, uh, is here also. Thank you both for joining Last Call. Greg, let me go to you first. Uh, you've had this bearish perspective. You look at these headlines that we're going to see next week. Uh, in addition to the Israel-Hamas war hanging sort of over everything, of all those news items that I just ticked off, what do you think is going to be the main driver next week? I think it's one of them that you haven't, actually, and that is okay. the direction of earnings. That's the direction of earnings. And so there are two capitulations that I've been waiting for uh, and patiently waiting throughout the year for that downside thesis to play out. The first was that we would get to a terminal rate, that we would get common agreement on a terminal rate. Uh, that we would get, that we would see going forward for the larger part of a year there was a lot of resistance to is it three percent is it four percent and you'll remember that over a year ago i said it would, it would likely be six well we're within 50 to 75 basis points of that right now so i'm not sure it's a big long-term deal if they raise another 25 or 50 basis points from here we're in that neighborhood already so i'll call that capitulation 
where we don't have capitulation yet, and what forebodes more downside is the direction of earnings. We're getting there. About 30 days ago, the growth rate projected for the fourth quarter was 8%. Recall that I've been saying I see no pathway to 8% earnings growth in the fourth quarter, nor 12% earnings growth for 2024. With an environment this hostile to earnings, because remember, we haven't felt the full bite of the 550 basis points that they have raised interest rates. And so that's still ahead of us. And so I did not see with that ahead of us, with liquidity still decreasing and with businesses and consumers really quite a bit, probably more than most would admit, I didn't see that as, as an environment that would encourage earnings growth. So we still have yet to have that capitulation. I think that's what's going to matter. Consensus is now about three full points below for fourth quarter where they were 30 days ago. And I think that that's a good sign. Sarah, let me get your thoughts here. Speaking of bites, right, we've got Apple earnings coming up next week. Uh, Some of the tea leaves as people look at Apple, maybe not so hot for a blockbuster quarter for them. Uh, What are you seeing in terms of the earning picture looking ahead to next week? Yeah, I mean, all is is not well in Cupertino. I think that, you know, certainly they, they've been down alongside the overall market this week. But the reality is, you know, there are some unique drivers taking that down. You know, we have things like the the news out of the Apple Watch, you know, patent case around some of that that uh, blood oxygen content. That means that they might not be able to to sell the new Apple Watch uh, in the U.S. right away. And, you know, that's less than 10 percent of their revenue. But that's not great, given that they haven't had a high new product in quite a while. You know, we're looking into 24 before the Vision Pro headset comes out and we'll have to wait and see if they have a killer use case for that and can get sales numbers. And, you know, a lot of people are unhappy with their new iPhones that the sales haven't been super strong. The people buying them are not happy with the battery life and some of those issues. And so, you know, it's not been a great week for Tim Cook. Greg, let me ask you this. I mean, so many analysts, including yourself, I believe, uh, at the beginning of this year, we're saying 2023 is going to be the year where we have a recession. It's all set up for that. And and that just didn't play out. I mean, we're not all the way at the end of the year, but that doesn't seem like it's going to play out for 2023. Uh, You know, you could you could make the joke that uh, everything is great about this economy, except the stock market right now. What do you think is out there holding this economy up despite all those predictions that we've that we were going to see this recession? Look, you're you're right. And and the distinction I'll make is that we don't necessarily need to have an economic recession to have an earnings recession. And we've certainly been in an earnings recession with four quarters of negative earnings growth. If it holds right now, we're at 2.7 percent earnings growth for this quarter. Uh, A a significant surprise, I would say, based on where we were 30 days ago, where the consensus was at a 40 basis point contraction. Uh, But going forward, you know, look, I, I think for these earnings to sustain, we need to see the consumer in better shape than they are. When we saw the GDP number, all the data we, we see coming out about retail and, and spending suggests that we're doing this from savings and we're doing this from the consumer levering up. When you see a default rate of 7% on new credit cards and you see people taking out new credit cards at a rolling interest rate of about 25% record highs, that does not suggest a consumer with a strong balance sheet. And so despite all the stimulus that we've put into the system this year to prop up the consumer and prop up the economy, there's limited runway, probably more than we'd like in an election year, but limited yeah. nonetheless. Yeah, and that's so what, that's what we some, don't even think about yet is the is the fact of an election year looming next year. That's always something to watch. And we've got a lot, a lot to watch for, as you guys both say, next week. Sarah and Greg. 
Thank you both. Meantime, uh, let's get to our studs and duds. The biggest winner of the week was advisory firm Willis Tower Watson, uh, plus 11.2%, followed by pest control company Rollins, up 9.2%, and defense company RTX, formerly known as Raytheon, they were up 9%. And the biggest loser, well, the maker of Invisalign, Align Technology, dropped 29.3%. Whirlpool lost more than 20%, and Hasbro dropped 18%. Now, coming up, a blockbuster day in court. Sam Bankman-Fried faces the jury. It's going to decide his fate. CNBC's Kate Rooney got a front row seat for all of it today. Hey there, Kate. Hey, Eamon. So it's his word against theirs. Sam Bankman-Fried takes the stand today, shifting the blame to his former associates who have already testified against him. We're going to have all of those highlights from the courtroom coming up next. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Canva. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back. An absolutely huge moment for the jury in the trial of Sam Bankman-Fried today. They finally heard from the defendant himself. CNBC's Kate Rooney is live outside the courthouse. Kate, what were the biggest takeaways from what we saw from Sam today? Eamon, so we finally got Sam Bankman-Fried's side of the story today. It was all about deflecting blame and trying to show that he didn't have criminal intent. He talked about mistakes. He acknowledged that customers were hurt in the collapse of his crypto exchange, but he said he didn't commit fraud. Bankman-Fried saying that his biggest mistake was not reigning in risk. When asked if FTX had a risk management department, SBF, as he's also known, said we sure should have. That got some chuckles in the courtroom today. When asked by his attorney, did you defraud anyone? He said, no, I did not. Also said no when asked if he took customer funds. Bankman-Fried said he was too busy to run both of the crypto companies in question here. He owned both of them. He said that he didn't know about some of the issues over at his hedge fund, Alameda Research, also said he was too busy to get a haircut. He was also too busy for a romantic partnership with Caroline Ellis. He talked about that today. It's his former girlfriend and the CEO of his hedge fund. He said he didn't have the time or energy to put into the relationship. He blamed her for not protecting against downside market losses. As far as some of the high profile political donations from FTX too, he says he didn't direct colleagues to give money to any politicians. Then when it came to the billions of dollars in venture capital investments, he said he believed the money came from Alameda's profits. He thought it was okay, he said, because he owned the hedge fund, he thought it was profitable, and he said he saw no reason why he could not borrow from the fund. There is no paper trail, Eamon, for a lot of this and everything that happened here because the company policy was to set everything to auto-delete. It's Bankman-Fried's words, 
against theirs, against those who have testified against him. Court, though, is back in session on Monday. We'll hear a lot more. Eamon, back to you. Kate, I don't want to make light of this, but he said he was too busy to be a good boyfriend. And then he turns around and throws his ex-girlfriend under the bus here. It sounds like he's too busy now to be a good ex-boyfriend, too. I mean, what is the jury going to make of that? I actually think it's a really interesting dynamic, Eamon, that the relationship between these two, she was a sympathetic person on the, the stand. She cried at one point, talking about the pressure and talking about really feeling a sense of relief when all of this melted down and, and some of the pressure she was under being an employee of Sam Beckman fried but also his girlfriend. So I think that's going to play into some of the psychology of the jury and any sort of sympathy they might feel for Caroline Ellison, whereas he, he's coming at this very monotone, very matter of fact when he's talking about the relationship. So if you're a juror, you got to think if it's, it's salacious, it's dramatic, but it probably also plays in to the trust factor of do you trust Sam Beckman fried in this case or do you trust Caroline Ellison? So big implications there for Beg yeah. Freed. Yeah. Question is, who benefits? Kate, thanks. Let's bring in Delta blockchain fund partner Kavita Gupta. Kavita, you've seen what's been playing out. You just saw Kate's report here. What do you think all of this means in terms of the industry, though? I mean, Sam Bankman-Fried was this iconic figure in the crypto industry, specifically for Bitcoin itself. Now he is, you know, on trial for his his future. Uh, we're seeing all these unseemly details spooling out here. What does all that do to the crypto industry more generally, do you think? I mean, I think it's it's a double-edged sword because at one point it did last year gave like a big question mark on whether as a capacity, as an industry, are we very legitimate? How are we really doing, taking care of risk, hedges, and legally, how much do we get to survive at this point? But at the same time, I think what's happened over time is this particular court case is literally writing a Bible or a book about everything which can go wrong and everything which has to be taken care. And it definitely does put a pressure more on the regulators to provide that clarity back to the industry because industry is here to survive. As you have seen in last week or two, even the prices have gone up. Everybody was expecting that this particular trial is actually going to take prices down, probably going to create another black hole. But we have not seen, we have seen absolutely opposite of that. So let's get to the big irony of the week, maybe the biggest irony of the week. With the SBF trial underway, Bitcoin is having a big week. It's up about 14 percent now at its highest level since last year. The run fueled by speculation that a Bitcoin ETF could soon be approved here in the United States. Is this momentum going to keep up, you think? Yeah, I mean, the market has shown that it is ready. It is ready for more bigger derivative products, regulated products, and there is a huge buying movement for that. And look at how NASDAQ or S&P 500 actually has been down 3%. All the technical stocks have not really performed, even though individual companies have outperformed the numbers. And that actually shows how market is ready for this type of liquidity and investment. And this is just an indication, though SEC chair has already said that they don't know, they have he has refused to comment, comment on yeah. anything in a direction of clarity, but the market has still really has given its signals. Kavita, let's have a little bit of a learning moment here, because we often on CNBC, we throw a lot of, around a lot of terms, a lot of jargon. Uh, Bitcoin ETF, uh, a lot of our viewers might not know what that means and why it's important. Can you explain just very quickly why it is that if that is approved, we'll see more demand for Bitcoin and then maybe that's bullish for prices? 
So one of the main difference right now is when you have to buy Bitcoins, you do have future ETFs, but when you have to do it, most of the time you have to go to centralized exchanges like FTX, Binance, and outside US in Coinbase. But those options are not available for really big institutions if they want to go to BlackRock's of the world or Goldman Sachs of the world. So that sort of institutional adoption and liquidity not available because SEC has not given its stamp of approval to have uh, those ETFs be available to bigger customer bases through the legitimate channels. And right. I think that liquidity is ready to be here. And it's the matter of uh, the regulations to have the clarity and open it up. Kavita, thanks for that. I feel like I understand it better already. Still ahead now, the road to a deal. General Motors and the UAW, they're near a milestone agreement. Fast-moving developments on that negotiation coming up next. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on-brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. And welcome back. Negotiations are moving rapidly between GM and the UAW. The automaker is getting close to a deal with the union. The terms would include, or could include anyway, a 25% wage increase for workers. That's similar to Ford's deal with the UAW that took place earlier this week. Now, UAW President Sean Fain is also in intense negotiations with Stellantis. So is the end of the strike finally in sight. Joining me now, CNBC auto reporter Mike Wayland and RBC Capital Markets global auto, autos analyst Tom Narayan. Mike, let's start with you. Just how close is GM to finalizing this deal right now? They are closer than they have been ever before, but the devil's in the details, in all honesty, in these negotiations. And once Ford set the pattern, the economics, like that 25% wage increase, were pretty much set in place. As of right now, the automakers are really kind of working on the unique aspects of the deal. And for GM, that can include retirees. They have a lot more retirees than, say, Stellantis does. And for Stellantis, that includes temps. Temps has a lot to do with Stellantis. They were the highest to use the temp workers, which are not full-time workers. In the Ford deal, those are kind of all being moved over. And we're kind of just still working on these little unique details that aren't the headline economics. But as of right now, the sides are still negotiating. Bain was at Stellantis uh, this afternoon. We're not sure if he's going to GM tonight or if he's actually already there. But yeah, the talks are ongoing. Yeah, look, I mean, you would think, right, with all this sort of deal talk in the air, that that would be a good thing for the companies to finally be putting this behind them. But shares of the big automakers have had a rough week. Ford shares lost 14 percent, including a 12 percent plunge just today. GM down about 8 percent for the week. Stellantis slid 5 percent. So, Tom, the question to you is, why are investors responding so negatively to what you might think, you know, would be pretty good news? I think the investors are not really responding to the UAW situation. It, I think it really has more to do with Ford's uh, earnings last night yeah. uh, when discussions <laughs> about the EV slowdown and what that means for right. the industry. So forget the strike. Uh, it's the EVs. Yeah, it's really the EV story. I mean, we've been talking about this 
fear for a while. It, I mean, if you listen to that call, it was pretty scary. It's also kind of tied to the macroeconomic fear we heard from Elon from Tesla last week. We saw what happened to that stock. I think it lost $125 billion in market cap. So UAW seems like going in the right direction. Um, but the macro situation and the EV slowdown, that's really stealing all these spotlights. Tom, Tom, do you think investors already have this contract negotiation in the rearview mirror? Like, it's close enough. We can kind of bake it into the cake. Yeah, I think so. Um, this our news already kind of came out uh, earlier in the week. Once Ford hit its news, uh, and we had heard rumblings of this, I think, last week, actually. Um, we know that the other two OEMs are going to fall in suit with the 25% increase, which is kind of where both sides were moving in to begin with. You saw the guidances issued by the uh, Ford and GM this past uh, week. And for the most part, it included a lot of this where consensus already was. So I think UAW is kind of someone in the rearview mirror and the entire spotlight has shifted to uh, to other things. Mike, put some odds on it. How, how likely are we to get a deal maybe as soon as this weekend? I will say that regarding the EVs, we're talking about with the UAW yeah. contract at Ford, we're talking about 700 to $900 more per vehicle produced. So yeah. this contract is having an impact on the production. And we're going to see that a lot more. And we're talking about a six. $7,000, $9,000 increase to billion increase, depending on the contract and which automaker. Um, as of right now, the sides are close. I mean, we're in, literally we're in rally bargaining, old school bargaining, something the union hasn't done until this week. They had a strategy. They wanted to kind of lean into these negotiations, talk months before. Automakers didn't necessarily go there. They wanted to go the old school style of rally bargaining. And that's where we're at right now. Yeah. And that's why when Ford gets the deal, we're expecting the dominoes to fall line for the other two. Sounds like it could come at any time now. Mike, Tom, thanks for that. Really appreciate it. Still ahead, oil prices back on March as the Israel-Gaza war ratchets up. Plus, the war's fallout, boiling tensions across corporate America and college campuses. How much farther can things go? Stay with us. Welcome back to Last Call. Israel's expanding ground operations in Gaza are roiling the energy markets this evening. WTI crude jumping more than 2% to about 85 bucks a barrel. What could we see come Monday? Well, let's ask veteran global energy expert Bob McNally. He's the founder and president of Rapid End Energy Group. Bob, thanks for joining Last Call tonight. We look at this situation and it just feels like it's teetering on the brink. We had a report from a reporter uh, in the region at the top of the broadcast tonight saying that it does not look as if the major Israeli ground push has happened. If we do see some kind of a Israeli ground push into Gaza on a, a large scale, is that the thing that's really going to impact oil markets? Or are we waiting for this war to spread to Iran, for example, before we see a really huge impact in those oil markets? So I think one will follow the other. Uh, that's the question. Ha is Israel about to begin major ground incursions in Gaza? I think the market, as we ended this week, seemed to think no. But the, the uh, activity overnight, even now, suggests that may be getting started. Once they start their ground invasion, the next big question will be, will Lebanese Hezbollah uh, intensify its attacks beyond just the border with Israel? Will it hit population centers? Will it hit strategic targets? Will the Houthis, Iran's proxies in Yemen, 
uh, retaliate for the Israeli ground incursion by hitting Haifa or other, ma- uh, excuse me, Eilat or other major cities. So the ground invasion is sort of the prelude to the possibility for an intensification or an expansion of the conflict uh, beyond Gaza and into the region. Uh, so that's why it's so important to see if Israel is going to go in here. Can you explain Iran's role in global oil markets right now? I mean, that's a huge question to ask in the limited television time that we have. But I think a lot of people sort of look at Iran generally and say, well, they're kind of bottled up by all these sanctions. They, they can't be a major contributor to the overall oil market. What's the, what's the reality in this, in this market? The reality is they've contributed quite a bit. Uh, the Biden administration sort of looked the other way and let them increase their exports to China, especially. So their exports are back up at 1.5, 1.7 million barrels a day. They've drawn down their floating storage. Uh, and so they're back to being a pretty hefty producer, not back to where they were before sanctions, but they've come a long way this year. The big risk, Eamon, is Iran poses a credible threat to the Strait of Hormuz and to production in the Gulf. Uh, they attacked the Saudi Abcake facility in ni- 2019. They and that's threatened- that big global bottleneck, right? Because all the oil goes through there. Uh, the Strait of Hormuz, right. 40% of seaborne traded crude, 20, about 20% of seaborne traded refined products, uh, LNG from Ross Lafon, and more importantly, the spare production capacity we have in the world, almost 5 million barrels a day, all of that is inside the Strait. So Iran's a pretty hefty exporter right now, but its real importance is its potential to disrupt exports to the world uh, market. Bob, thanks for your analysis tonight. And as the economic impact of the war spreads, the conflict's fallout is roiling corporate America and universities. Pro-Palestine, anti-Israel demonstrations have been happening across cities and campuses all week long. And letters from student organizations blaming Israel for the cycle of violence in the region aren't sitting well in some C-suites. Take Davis Polk. That's a prestigious law firm. It withdrew offers from Columbia and Harvard students who were members of those organizations. But it may reverse that decision after some students said, well, they didn't authorize the letters that were sent. For more, we're joined by journalist and Yale University lecturer Joanne Lippman. She's also the author of Next, The Power of Reinvention in Life and Work, which it sounds like some people are going to have to do this week. Joanne, look, you work at Yale. You're seeing some of this firsthand. What are you seeing on these campuses? Yeah, I absolutely am seeing this firsthand. The emotions are so high on both sides. The campus has been roiled like every other campus, I think, in the country. Uh, You've got dueling protests. You've got pro-Palestine protests. You've got uh, pro-Israel protests. And then you've got protests just for all the civilian victims, right, on either side. Um, And we're also seeing, as you said, you know, students, uh, there are students who are afraid to speak up. And we're also seeing some students who have had um, uh, offers that have been pulled. Uh, And if I could just say, I actually think one of the biggest issues that we have seen to date, one of the biggest problems that I'm seeing across corporate America, as well as at universities, has been sort of this conflation between Hamas and Palestinians, right? Hamas, designated as a terrorist group by the United States, launched a terrorist attack. Palestinians, people who live in Gaza, um, didn't necessarily elect these, so they haven't had an election since 2006. And right. you've got all, you know, the civilian population. And I think that any um, sentiment that has been sort of pro-Palestine in any way, you know, pray for Palestine, or at Yale, I've seen chalked on the ground, hashtag free Palestine, is seen as the equivalent 
of endorsing the death of Israelis. And I right. do think we have to, we got to pull back a little bit and have some perspective and not see things in such a binary way. Now, look, I, I graduated from college in the 90s, so it's been a long time since I've been on a campus. But I remember, you know, just all of these campus groups, right? You know, it might have a membership list of 75 people, 50 people, but it was like two or three people at the top who did everything and decided on everything and posted up the signs and everything like that. I, I, we get into this issue of what's fair for the people who are the members of these groups, if the leaders of the groups are taking these extreme and in some cases offensive positions, and there's this retaliation from corporate America, how should C-suite executives think about this? And where's the appropriate line to say, you know, that speech is just inappropriate for our organization? Yeah, okay, this is a great question. I, one of the things that I found really disturbing is this doxing of students. Uh, we've seen this, you know, Bill Ackman was supporting this at Harvard to say, Tell us the names of all of these students who were who signed this very offensive document, which, by the way, some of the students, a lot of them took their names off of it. One of the organizations that had signed on to it was Amnesty International of Harvard. Right. So but the point being, if we're going to be against hate and against harassment, why would we be doxing these students? And it's not just because I don't want to hire these people. When you're doxing them, you want to put them out public publicly to shame them and to target them. Yeah. And that makes no sense. I mean, a lot of these students, you know, either they don't understand or they don't know what they're signing on to. It, it seems pretty clear that the line should be, you know, endorsement of violence, maybe endorsement of violence against civilians, right? I mean, uh, glorification of violence. That's exactly. a pretty clear line. And then otherwise, you might be talking about people's political opinions, and that gets a lot more tricky uh, for companies and executives to sort of parse all that and find out who said exactly what to who three years ago, four years ago, by the time some of these students graduate. Absolutely. This is essential free speech, right? We want to have free speech. Students should be free to say whatever it is that they want. Companies, by the way, are also free to hire anybody who they want. Um, but in terms of, you know, to 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 make yeah. this sort of conflation that if you say something that I don't agree with, uh, that you should be doxxed and that you should be, um, you know, yeah. prevented from having a job, it just uh, doesn't actually make any sense. Yeah. Tough issue, tough time. Joanne, thanks. And coming up, a CNBC investigation looks at a pandemic relief program and an industry that popped up alongside it to cash in on billions of taxpayer dollars. Welcome back. The IRS and DOJ are investigating a government program intended to help small businesses navigate the pandemic. The concern, a cascade of claims, some of which the IRS says may be fraudulent. The focus is not only on applicants, but on a cottage industry that exploded onto the scene promoting the program to small business owners. Here's CNBC's Kate Rogers with more. Eamon, it's called the Employee Retention Credit, or ERC, and the IRS says approximately $230 billion in taxpayer dollars have already been paid out as of mid-September. It's an up to $26,000 per employee credit for businesses who qualify with proof of declining revenues or a government shutdown order that did not allow for operations. Eligibility rules and clarifications have continued to be updated by the agency through September. Some have said those guidelines, certain of them open to interpretation, 
pave the way for promoters of the credit. The government said it's looking hard at whether aggressive sales tactics by firms lured small businesses into taking money which they weren't qualified to receive. The IRS has not named specific companies it's looking into, but said the potential fraud in advertising around it is so extreme it has flat out stopped approving the credits till at least the end of the year. But in our investigation, we take a look at the practices of innovation refunds, one of the industry's biggest advertisers and one of many players in the ERC promotion business. The commercials were popping up everywhere. Let innovation refunds help with your ERC tax refund. Innovation Refund says it's processed $4 billion worth of the pandemic-era tax credit known as the ERC as of May. And it only takes eight minutes to qualify. But in September, the IRS announced a moratorium due to questionable claims and fraud concerns across the entire ERC promotion industry. Stop waiting. Go to innovationrefunds.com. That moratorium paused business for innovation refunds and other ERC companies helping owners apply for the credit. CNBC spoke to 20 former employees and contractors of innovation refunds at varying rankings in the company. From many of those conversations, a picture emerged of a company focused on aggressive growth and relentless sales of the product. The way the organization was run does not make me feel comfortable that I was part of a We spoke to a former employee by phone who asked not to be identified due to fears over retaliation. We were never told to tell a client that they qualified. We were not a tax professional. We can simply say it looks like you would be pre-qualified. On its website, Innovation Refunds makes it clear it's not a tax firm. It partners with independent tax attorneys who determine if a business is eligible for the ERC. And those attorneys sign the paperwork that gets submitted to the IRS. Several former workers told CNBC this model could protect it from potential liability if ineligible businesses claimed the credit. Do you feel Innovation Refunds has insulated itself from blame by partnering with outside CPAs and tax attorneys? Absolutely. They've clearly insulated themselves extremely well and said that they don't provide For its role as a middleman, Innovation Refunds charges business owners a 25% contingency fee on the refund they receive. A former employee in a leadership position said in their opinion, because of this business model, management was encouraged to take aggressive tax positions on qualifications in order to maximize their contingency fee. We create a very easy path for business owners to tap into a significant amount of money. Solicitations CNBC reviewed show that Innovation Refunds sent potential customers pre-approval amounts for the credit. One potential customer was pre-approved for more than $300,000 and was sent emails with titles like apply or say goodbye. Former employees and contractors told CNBC the company incentivized workers with perks to stay and sell. An internal company email CNBC obtained said there was a $100,000 bonus payment tied to sales targets. When we reached out about this story, Innovation Refunds declined to comment, writing it won't be participating. But five of the 20 former employees and contractors CNBC spoke with spoke positively about their time at the company. Innovation refunds pride themselves on being ultra-conservative and compliant, wrote the company's former executive vice president of financial partnerships on LinkedIn. He told CNBC most of the company's leads were already enticed by the marketing. The IRS said it's now intensifying audit work to look into dubious claims industry-wide. If audited, small businesses that filed inaccurate claims could owe some of the money they received back, plus penalties. 
The government says it's working with businesses pressured by promoters. The IRS announced an option for businesses with pending claims to withdraw or reduce them if they believe they were ineligible or exaggerated. I don't know if I'll ever know if it was done correctly on a case-by-case basis, um, but it makes me very queasy that people could be owing a lot of money back. Jen McCabe has been consulting businesses on the ERC and says she's seeing issues across the industry. The rules were completely getting tossed out the window. Her concern is for small business owners who may have been targeted by promoters of the credit. They're scared. I'm helping so many people determine if they were eligible a year after they've already banked the money. And that that's sad. ERC scams topped the IRS dirty dozen list for 2023. The agency doesn't name specific companies, but lists unsolicited ads claiming you can qualify within minutes and fees based on a percentage of the refund amount of the ERC as red flags. These tactics were used by many ERC promoters. The promoters should be held accountable. They've trained huge sales organizations. They've set themselves up to be distanced from these mistakes. They've planned for this. They're sophisticated. In its September press conference, the IRS said the Department of Justice is now involved in the IRS criminal division, has initiated 252 investigations involving more than $2.8 billion in potentially fraudulent ERC claims without naming specific companies involved. Amen. So, Kate, what can small business owners do who think they may not now qualify under this updated guidance? Yeah, so the IRS announced this withdrawal option for those who have not yet been paid out for the claim and an amendment option for those whose claims may be overstated. In addition, it said in September that it's working on new initiatives to help businesses who were victimized by aggressive promoters, which includes a settlement program for repayments. But even in reality, there were also some businesses out there who were willing to take a chance on filing a gray area claim for varying reasons, something we saw as well with the PPP program. So when we've asked many sources who's to blame here, the answer has often been a mix of either the government and the promotion companies and sometimes even the business owners themselves, as this was an unprecedented amount of aid available. Kate, thanks for that reporting. And coming up here, an answer to one of life's most vexing questions, what's really behind your iPhone's decaying battery life? You're going to be surprised. Stay with us. Well, if you feel like your not-so-old iPhone doesn't have the battery strength that it used to, you are not alone. The Wall Street Journal did some digging into the issue with, you don't need a new iPhone, you just need a new battery. Wall Street Journal personal technology columnist and friend of Last Call, Joanna Stern, joins us now. Joanna, walk us through this. How can you beef up your battery life on your old iPhone? Well, the first thing that everyone needs to know if you have an iPhone is that there's actually a hidden health to your battery. So hidden, you go to settings, you go to battery, you go to battery health, and then in there you will see something called the maximum capacity. And that is actually the health of your battery. There's a percentage there. And what that's telling you really is when you first get that iPhone, it's at 100%. That's a brand new battery. As you start to use that battery, the capacity goes down. And when you get into the 80% territory, really lower 80%, that's when you're in trouble with the battery. And that's Uh why in that area, when you get there, you'll see more draining of your battery. 
So I just did that. Settings, battery, battery health. It pulls up this screen. It says maximum capacity, 86%. That's a B plus, right? How am I doing? Well, what what phone do you have and how long have you had it? Uh, that's a good, I don't even know what phone this is. This is just like the iPhone it, that the office it, gave me. I have no idea. So it really depends on how long you've had that phone. If that's an iPhone 14 Pro, which is what I had, and that's your rating, it's not very good. You're expecting <laughs> these batteries to last around two years, right? You expect the health of that battery and the phone to last about two years. In my case, I'm already in 87% after one year. And so that's why I wrote this piece, which seemed to me that this was degrading faster than years past. And I'd heard that from readers and some other in the tech industry as well. And what happens when your battery gets gets that low, you know, below that 80% threshold you're talking about? Does it just not perform as well? It just everything gets slowed down? Really, you just see that the battery drains every day a little bit quicker, right? And that's yeah. what I had started to see. So this battery isn't lasting as long. And I had noticed that throughout the year. But then I went to go check on this setting and I said, ah. And then there's another hidden setting, which I talk about in this piece, which is actually called battery cycles. And one of the worst things for your battery is actually charging your battery. And so charge cycles are the amount of times you're basically discharging or charging your battery. And that about, can drain on the battery. What about keeping a zillion apps open? Every time I go to close my apps, I realize I've got like 83 apps open, just running in the background at all times. Does that drain the battery life? That's not as bad as what might happen to some people. And I believe actually what might have been happening on my iPhone 14 Pro, which is when you have some apps that are just taxing the processor more than they should. In the background, they might be loading things, sending notifications, doing secret background tasks. And that's why you also want to go to that area in settings, look at what apps are taxing the battery. It's not so much, you don't have to worry about having, you know, 100 apps open. The phone yeah. itself and iOS takes care of that. It's really those rogue apps that might be doing some bad work in the background. Very quickly, just a couple of seconds left. How much is it going to cost me to replace my battery on my iPhone? Is this an expensive thing? Not, not really. Depends on what type of phone you have. The iPhone 14 Pro, Apple quoted $100. Uh, an independent repair shop quoted $89. Not every battery replacement is equal, though. I definitely suggest you go to Apple or an Apple-authorized uh, repair shop to, to look into your options. I love this segment. I feel like I learned all the secret things on the iPhone, or at least a couple of them. Uh, thanks for educating us, Joanna. Really appreciate your time. And you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. That's it for Last Call tonight. And I get to say this weekend. Brian is back on Monday. Undercover Boss, coming up next. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.